Well, you know what they say. It's it's if you're gonna if you're gonna put make someone foreign, just give them a British accent, and then you can just give them any nationality after that. Whenever you say you know what they say, anything could come out of your mouth. Like I have no idea where you're going. It's it's exciting, isn't it? It's a little dangerous too, to be honest with you. Hey guys, welcome to another episode of I Finally Watched. I'm Alon. This is David, and today I finally watched 2001 A Space Odyssey. So I think this is like the fourth time I've seen this film. I think once was like in preparation for going to film school because I was like, I'm not going to go to film school without seeing this film because I'm not going to be criticized by other artsy fartsy film students that are going to make fun of me for not seeing this film. So I watched the film and I hated it. I thought it was the most like boring, like I'm pretty sure I fell dead asleep before the bone slow motion went up in the air. Okay. And then as I predicted, we watched it in film class. And then I'm pretty sure I fell asleep when uh, they introduced Hayford into the, in the space station, right before they even like went to the moon. Haywood. Um, Haywood, whatever. And then I watched it again, maybe six, seven years ago, and I loved it. I was like, this is amazing. And then watching it again more recently, um, I still feel like that. I was like, this is amazing. My only critique for this film, I, I have another one, but I'll talk about it towards the end. But my main one is that you don't need 10 full minutes of psychedelic colors like 10 minutes that's like a bit excessive uh but yeah so i'm 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 curious for your first time watching this i know you watched it twice in a row did you like it did you like it better the second time and uh and did you like the monkeys you know i didn't like the monkeys <laughs> um <laughs> I, I, I think that part is probably the least connected to the rest of it. It's almost like a, it's a little bit like just the artsy fartsiest part of it, except for then the last 30 minutes, right? Um, I think you could have done that part a lot quicker. And this is like, this movie is like a kind of a microcosm of all older movies where every scene is elongated. Like if you did this movie today and just did the scenes that were in this, this would be like an hour and 20 minute movie. Like it, you couldn't even stretch it all the way because like the, the monkey parts yeah. could be like five minutes. The moon part is literally <laughs> it's like three scenes, right? But it lasts 30 minutes, um, maybe even longer. Um And so, I mean, yeah, that's why you probably fell asleep the first two times. I, I will say so. I, I liked it. Um, in order to prepare for this, because, you know, a little behind the scenes is like, I have kids and, uh, I get tired. And so I like ran out of time to fully rewatch this the second time I had to like speed through some stuff, but mm-hmm, it's like, mm-hmm. there's a lot of dead space where I could just watch it as it's being fast forward. Um, was that a pun? Not purposefully. So, it, but I, I really liked it. It, it kind of reminded me, I think I told you this, like a like a ride at Epcot. You know what I mean? Like just like the it starts with like the <laughs> Dawn of Man 
and then it's like this if you're, you just you're talking st- you're talking about the 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 one specific ride at epcot yeah spaceship earth right yeah yeah um like it's kind of like if you just put all of this into that it, like it would i think it would work perfectly as a ride it, it would, would make, also it would make the ride better <laughs> a little bit i mean there's parts of that ride i liked but now it's just nostalgia right so um but yeah, I, I really enjoyed it. I think it's like a movie you obviously have to watch. But starting out, I was like, how fucking long are we going to hang out with these monkeys? <laughs> well, you know, cert- most certainly having watched Interstellar right before this. And then let's even I, I want to even bring in Heat, right? Because all three of those movies are either three hours long or very close to three hours long. And w- when we were watching Heat, and talking about it, we kept saying how how it did not feel like a three hour movie, and and the pacing was amazing. And I and I thought the same thing with Interstellar, like it didn't feel three hours, and the pacing was amazing, and there was always something that was working towards something else. Um, and there was no dead space in the movie about dead space. Um, but for this movie, I think what they were so concerned about is that. And I have to give it to this. I mean, this movie was made in 1968. Okay, this is before we went to the moon, and the the graphics of space and and just the I guess the stuff you would call CGI nowadays. I don't know if that really is like concerning for for that era, but is amazing. Like some of that stuff is better than what we can produce on a bigger budget today, and. And, and of course, I, I don't know if the difference between what they made in computers or if they like fucking all that was models and painted and stuff. But whatever it was, it looked amazing. I think they really wanted to show that off. Right. They wanted to be like, look at this. Look how amazing it is. So we're going to spend 45 minutes while this guy fixes this one part of the satellite in space. And like you said, I mean, nowadays it's like, Matthew McConaughey goes out to the space station, fixes this fucking part last 15 seconds. But, you know, that kind of stuff, we see that all the time nowadays. And in 1968, that film is probably the only place anyone could have seen that that kind of stuff back then. And so they were like, you know what, we're going to we're going to eat up the, the time to show every grueling part of that and they did no i agree i there's actually i did a little bit of reading because there were a ton of things in this movie that when you look at you're like this is 1968 how did they do this one of the things you brought up was like the actual spaceships and um they just used like a black background and like drew in like the stars and shit like it was all like <laughs> instead yeah. of doing like I guess they called it a blue screen back then. It'd be a green screen now. Instead of doing that, they just like painstakingly went to detail of like drawing these backgrounds. Um, And then there's a bunch of other stuff as we get to it. Like, I mean, one thing that you and I talked about was the fucking leopard and that turned out to be real, which (laughs) I was like, that's what I thought. But what's funny is I told you, I was like, I don't, I don't really understand because it didn't look real it like it looked real but it it looked really good but like part of it looked fake and then i was reading that they like in order to shoot the scenes with the leopard they had to use like projectors for like the background or something 
and that projection like flashed into the leopard's eyes. And so that's what made it look fake to me or like at least like <laughs> something was a little bit off to it. Um, and, then, and then you think like, oh, my God, there was like a leopard attacking a dude in a uh, in a monkey suit. And I was like, right. oh, <laughs> I mean, what? how else could they have done it? Obviously. But just <laughs> the. The <laughs> they had they had life of pie graphics back in 1968 right and so like they just all of the practical effects and how beautiful the movie like obviously there's the like the what's going on in this thing aspect of it and like the psychedelic aspect of the, the last 30 minutes but i was just really the whole time just looking at how beautiful it all was and just like how mesmerizing certain scenes were like they take fucking forever to land on the moon it's like seven minutes right of like actual movie time once you see the moon for them to land on it and like nowadays that would be 10 seconds yeah i mean but even when when the guy is in the space shuttle right and he's like being um coming into the like the reception area and he gives his name and and whatever and then he goes into this like did you like how the spaceship was sponsored by hilton that's nice it was a like a hilton space station um but then like that whole thing felt like where are they going with this um but then for what i figured is just they just wanted to lead up to a zoom call with his daughter, which is like whatever for us, but like to imagine that to be like the main form of communication back in like how, how long ago was 1968? Like 50 years ago? 54 years ago? Yeah. So that's that, you know, they just wanted to be like, oh, we thought of Zoom calls. Well, that's a little bit like why I say, you know, the whole uh, Spaceship Earth Epcot aspect of it because it's like seeing what people in the 60s and 70s thought 2001 was going to be um and like we probably you know definitely can't reach jupiter right now but like yeah we haven't reached that now 20 years later um i i think we should probably get into it i think the most iconic part of this movie is um the music oh god Yes. Yeah. Which, uh, you know, the movie books bookends with those same kind of like the same score. Right. And then you have this classical piece that is brought in right after that when they're doing all of like the, the going into space and the landing on the moon, like all of that. You know, they have this one long classical piece. One thing I read that was really funny is he brought in like Kubrick brought in like several people to do the score and fired several people. And then like one of the last guys he brought in was like, yeah, I want to sound it, it to sound like this classical music. And the guy was like, well, why don't you just use that if you like it? And he's like, oh, fuck, I will, I guess. Um, yeah. So yeah, th- that start of it is is obviously like kind of perfect. And it puts you in this like in this mood of like excitement, right? Like it just works perfectly. And then you get to the monkeys. And the one part that I did watch with intense like analysis, you know, analyzing it, was how the monkeys worked because I'll just I'll just go through real quick. So, you know, there's monkey, I'm just going to call the monkey group A is at like mm-hmm. a water hole, right? Yeah. 
And then what I think is monkey group B comes over and just takes the watering hole pretty easily. Yes, yes. And so then I got confused because all these monkeys look alike, and I don't mean to offend them. But you then have monkey group A, which I think has been like ostracized away from the water hole, is what I assume. They discover Mm -hmm. the monolith. Uh, and the scene of like the monkeys like kept jumping back and forth to touch it, and then one of them finally touches it, and then they just all start getting all over it. Um, I don't know if that gave them some special powers. Not really sure. Uh, but then right after that, maybe connected, who knows? But uh, one of the monkeys, uh, a, a monkey from Group A, discovers how to use a bone uh, as a tool slash club. You know what I mean? Like a, basically just a a mallet. And then they, uh, then monkey group A goes back, gets their watering hole back, right? And uh, kills one of the monkey group B members. Okay. So, I mean, you're not wrong. Um, and, and that was the, the, the most boring analysis I've ever heard of someone explaining a movie. However, um, See, this is where I think you and I differ with the monolith. Uh, For me, I don't understand what the monolith's uh, motivation is through the movie. So let's let's talk about when it first shows up in in with the monkeys. Right. The the title on the screen is Dawn of Man. And uh, these are obviously like pre homo sapiens uh, primates that like that are going to evolve into us eventually. Right. And so you could I, I so this is how I took it. I felt like the first couple times watching this that the monolith shows up whenever humanity takes a giant leap forward. So it shows up right when the intelligence of of the animal um in this case kind of develops this like violent tendency, this like this, this intelligence to use a tool as a weapon. Um, This time watching it, I felt different. I felt like maybe the monolith showed up and gave them the intelligence to use the tool as the weapon. So that's where I think we could like, like different interpretations of this film. And I think that you could differently interpret it throughout the whole film but you could either say the monolith was there to give them the intelligence to to evolve that aspect of their life using the tool as a weapon kind of giving them violence i guess or it just so happens to show up every time there is a jump in uh evolution now what confuses me is that when we are shown like a day and night cycle in the monkey scene, did you take it as like when the monolith showed up to when the monolith disappeared, like it disappeared the next day or like did maybe a million years go by between those two scenes? No, that was still monkey group a as I. Okay. Okay. So it was like a day. It was like here for like a couple hours and then the next day they woke up and it was gone. Right. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Do you, do you see what I mean? Do you feel one way or the other about like, did it give them intelligence or did they, did it show up 
just when they were getting intelligence. I don't fucking know. I mean, they touched it and then they learned how to use a club. So I, I mean, that tends to lead me to think gave them intelligence, but I don't even know if that's the whole point of it. Um, I just, that's why I, th- I don't think the, it's really that necessary to, for, to be there. I really just think it's a parallel of what happens later. Right. And then, you know, he, what's interesting though, is they, and I read this cause I didn't make this connection, but when he throws the bone up, you then next see what looks like a satellite, but I guess this is it's, like, it's, it's a, a nuclear, no, it's a nuclear weapons satellite is what it is. What? And the whole, the whole point is the transition from like the monkey weapon to the human weapon, the ultimate weapon. But then that doesn't really connect to anything else, right? Uh, unless no- you think it's like a like because then the monolith monolith shows back up on the moon when like that next jump of humanity violence, right? Well, what's that jump though? I, yeah, I don't. That's why I don't get what the when it shows up on the moon. Apparently, it's just been on the moon. I mean, I mean, okay, so it was on Earth, and then it's on the moon, and then what? It decides to just float through space all the way to Jupiter? Like, I, I, but see, that's what I mean about I don't get the motivation, because then it kills the people that are on the moon. Or does it kill the people on the moon? It hurts the people on the moon. It probably gives them, like, an earache, is all it does to them. Because, yeah, Haywood's still around. Spoiler, he? he's, in the, he's in the sequel, so. <laughs> um... It, but but in this movie as a standalone movie, is he still around? Or I mean, we don't see him. No, he is still around again. because he he is. Um, and maybe you only know this if you had subtitles on. But the video after uh, Hal is unplugged, uh, that's Haywood speaking. Oh, I didn't I didn't know that. So that's that's Haywood. Yeah. Okay, so he, so this is how the story unfolds, and let's just get past the monkey business, huh? Hey, you know we should have done this pod high because it would have been a lot more fun to try to explain this that way. Um, oh, and one thing, but no, I, I didn't. Yeah, I did ahead. forget. I did forget to mention that the club also allowed the monkeys to get food, which then made them stronger than Monkey Group B. It's obviously a key component to all of this. Is it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Tools give you strength and lets you develop, right? You know, tools are what allow you to sort of modernize your society. Okay, but that's that's what I mean about the monolith's motivation is that it was almost rewarding the monkeys in this like in this Mm -hmm. jump. But then when it shows up on the moon, it hurts these astronauts. So why why did it not hurt the monkeys? Why did it hurt these? I don't know that this it. I don't know that the uh, the sound waves that were going to Jupiter were meant to hurt them. I think it was just like, oh, you know, whatever happens, you know, it happens type deal. I don't think the monolith, which I think is, is suppo- you know, similar to um, uh, Interstellar. The monolith is just sort of a representation of an intelligent life outside of our world. Now it shows up with the monkeys, but I think we're supposed to know that this comes from somewhere else can you imagine being a monkey and then like you don't know anything like you 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 know your family and yourself and the watering hole right and all of a sudden this big fucking black thing just like appears one day like how it's kind of like being a baby you know (laughs) 
new things appear and you're like, what the hell is this? <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's, it's like it's so new and it's so above their intelligence that maybe it's just like it's it's like they just have to do they just have to accept it. Like they have no choice but to just accept ex- its existence like yeah. a baby. So the next part is we get to it's a new scene. It's one that doesn't have a title card, but it's basically just the moon part of it is its own little vignette in this. And um, once again, we talked about the music. It's beautiful. I love like all of the spaceship designs I think are great. Um, the scene where Haywood drops his pen. I was like, that's really cool. How do they do that? Do you know how they did that? <laughs> no. How do they do that? So they just created a little invention in 1968 or 1967. I think this took four years to make. So who fucking knows? But double-sided tape on glass is how it was created. The effect of the pen floating. That's cool. I'm way more interested to know how uh, Dave and, and... Oh, fuck. What's his name? Frank. Frank. Yeah, Dave and Frank fucking ran around upside down the space station. Well, I do know that. Do you want to know now or do you, you want to would. know later? <laughs> yeah, just tell me now. It was basically a uh, like a rotating guinea pig wheel, a ferret, like a ferret's wheel. So it's there in the same place the whole time as it moves. And I guess the camera moves with it. No, no, no. Okay, so I, I get how they could do that with some scenes. But how do they do it when he on the side when he's like, like, when the camera is like kind of above them and he they're running towards the camera, I get that it's like a like a hamster wheel. But how do they do it when he's like running on the side of the, the thing? That's is how yeah, rotating? that's how they that's how they did it. Yeah, he's the thing is rotating and he's staying still. Looks cool as shit. It's like it's it's fucking amazing. Like cuz first they do it to where the camera's staying still and you see him running around it in a circle. You know like that's awesome. But then they do a shot where the camera is following him from behind. It almost is like the yeah, reason this yeah, movie, yeah, yeah. The movie, the movie's so long because he just wanted to be like, "Look at what we did! <laughs> Isn't this amazing?" He's like, "I well, got to show it, you for a long time." <laughs> it's almost like when you see it in in one way, you see it long enough just when you're like, you're about to understand. Oh, okay, this is what they do, right? And then he shows a different perspective on it. Then you're like, "Wait, what? What? <laughs> now I'm lost again." Yeah, no, absolutely. Well, and uh, so when Haywood gets to uh, the moon, right? Oh, and one thing I want to say is I think the stewardess in the scene where she grabs the pen, it might be the same one, but um, she like came, she wasn't drunk, but she was on pain pills for like a toothache. And so it made her wobbly when she walked and Kubrick really loved it, but she didn't want to tell him because she was like, I don't want to get fired for being drugged. But it like, it gave like this really cool effect just by happenstance, I think is kind of an awesome detail to all this. But when when Haywood gets there and the way that the floor is slightly bent in the space station right before they get to the moon is also just cool. Like the design of it is just like so well thought out. It's just a slight bend up. Um yeah. it's just so well and the other thing, and I, I think this has to be the impetus for the scene in Interstellar where the space station is swinging uh spinning like sixty rotations per second or minute or whatever and they have to spin theirs at the same to dock with it when right. the when the thing is going to land on i think it's either before the moon or i think it's the moon landing no it's when, on the moon yeah, yeah 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 so it it's spinning 
Well, no, there's one where it's spinning and it has to dock with it. And so it's like spinning as it's going in like the side hole. I think that's before the moon. Um, but anyway, yeah, just like all of those shots are just so well done. Um, the thing with Christopher Nolan is that it's not interstellar, but with Inception, the the Joseph Gordon-Levitt hallway spinning thing, right? right. They have to like make the make the hallway, put it on like this giant rotating thing. It's kind of like what they did to for for this, right? Yeah, right, no, it's absolutely. the same same innovation. Um, just fifty some odd years later. Um, I like how when they get to the space station uh, before they go to the moon, it's basically like a um, like uh, like a check in for customs. It's like customs. Yeah, like I yeah. give your name and like oh, and then what's funny too is he meets those people that are Russian afterwards. The first time I watched this, I was like, is this supposed to be some new country of people, right? Because they all seem to have British accents, but then they have Russian names. And then it after that, it says they're speaking a foreign language when in the subtitles, right? And I was like, all right, so it's supposed to be some weird thing. But then when I watched it the second time, Haywood checks in and the lady clicks on English for his like instructions at the computer, at the TV screen. But there right. was like five other options and one of them was Russian and there wasn't some weird one. So I was like, oh, so they're just Russian, but they have British accents when they speak English. So, well, you know what they say. It's it's if you're going to if you're going to put make someone foreign, just give them a British accent and then you can just give them any nationality after that. Whenever you say, you know what they say, anything could come out of your mouth. Like I have no idea where you're going. It's, it's exciting, isn't it? It's a little dangerous, too, to be honest with you. I'm glad we could edit. Uh, all this, this whole part to the moon is just, like, so lighthearted. And it's funny, like, the monkeys are weird. This part's lighthearted. And then Jupiter is, from then on, a horror movie. Um, <laughs> right. It's just so, it's so interesting the way it's done. Although, I will say... So Haywood gets to the moon. He's immediately thrown in this meeting. Um, and uh, he he had sort of talked to the, the Russians about this epidemic at the basically the American base on the moon. Um, and they're like, oh, you know, this is violating IIS conventions because you won't confirm this. He's like, well, I'm sorry, I can't, you know. Um, and then he gets to his people. and He's like, yeah, you know, this is a cover up. We found something. Um and we're going to have to keep this cover up going for basically indefinitely. Um, and then when they get to the monolith as they're flying over to, which once again takes forever flying from the base to the monolith, um, there is like horror music playing then, you know, and it's like, like definitively like a horror vibe you're getting because of that music. And like, that's when you kind of know this is transitioning into something else as a movie. Um. I, I love that. That's probably my favorite musical piece in the whole movie. It, it sounds like a thousand house flies inside a microphone. It's a, it's awesome. Yeah, absolutely. Like, <laughs> that's the only way I can explain it. No, I agree. The other thing we didn't talk about. So um, you already mentioned the little girl, which is actually Stanley Kubrick's daughter, which I think is mm-hmm. cool. Um, the when they're on the space when they're on the the space station that's i think it's heading to the moon the woman who 
walks into this little area and then walks in a circle upside down to go to the other way to, to like deliver the food. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And didn't she go up a or down a ladder or something like that? Maybe. I don't know. There's so many like transitions like that. I can't remember. Yeah, um, well, I know. I, I know what you're talking about. Yeah. Just, yeah, completely walks upside down, like in a stationary position. I was like, that is so awesome. Mm hmm. Just like the thought to go into it. And, you know, they couldn't do the whole wires and floating thing that you would just do now. That would be, That's like that's almost just how it has to be done now, because we have more knowledge about how actual space flights work. Um, but just the way, you know, this was before a lot of that was done or any of it, really. So it's like it's cool to see an interpretation from nothing that looks so just well thought out. Um, I just want to clarify something about when I said, you know, you can slap a British accent on anyone and then call them any nationality. I'm talking about those movies that, you know, it's clearly like in a different time, in a different like medieval Europe or something, or they can be in France or Germany or whatever. But, you know, the, the movie is going to an American audience primarily or like a like an English speaking audience prim primarily. So instead of like having it in that language, all the actors um, or all the characters just so happen to speak in a British accent because that's like exotic enough, but not like the actual native language. That makes sense, right? Yeah, no, no. Yeah, you're not being offensive the movies of the time just didn't give a shit <laughs> right that, that's that's my point that's all i'm the, saying the audience i don't think anyone thought ill of you the audiences didn't care and the people making the movie didn't care and then just every bad guy was russian for a while so i, I get what you're saying and um, now every bad guy is russian now so exactly <laughs> yeah for sure yeah. um and uh, also i like loved the joke of the zero gravity toilet instructions um, I didn't read them all, but just like just that part of it. And like, please read all of this before you try and use this bathroom is so great. And I, I heard that this was like purposely the only joke in the entire movie because the rest of this is like fairly serious or just like not comedic. Um, Speaking of comedic, we get to we already talked about them on the moon and, and the the high pitch frequency kind of gets us to um, Frank and Dave on, on the, on their way to Jupiter. Right. And I think what's really cool is they give Hal like a sense of, of humanity, but he's still very like cold as a robot, but he's, he's, and I, I think like he's not purposely funny, but like him commenting on, uh, I think it's Dave's art. I think that's funny. Like that was funny to me. Yeah, no, yeah. And I also think, and this is, I think this is fairly obvious that they kind of purposely have Dave and Frank treat Hal differently. Like Frank is more like, you're not real. You're a computer. I'm going to treat you like a computer. Whereas Dave treats uh, how more like a person, right? And I forget which one answers this question. I guess it doesn't really matter, but one of them are like, um, you know, the, the interviewer is like, does he have a personality? And they're like, well, they programmed him to have one, which is kind of like, you know, yeah, he's not actually real, but he, he does have this. Um, 
Well, one thing I want to say before we get to the, the Dave and Frank part is um, on their way to the monolith, they say that it, has, it was intentionally buried four million years ago. And so I guess we're supposed to assume that when it left the monkeys, that was four million years before this moon scene. And that maybe it went, the monolith went directly from there with the monkeys to the moon. And then it's like, all right, you'll, you know, sort of like what you're saying, but humans will find me when they're ready, when they've kind of advanced enough to get to the moon. And then they get to the moon. It's like, you found me. And now I'm going to send a signal to Jupiter. And that's where you need to go next. I just like how like you're you're giving a personality to the monolith like he buries himself four million years later oh you found me he's really into treasure hunts <laughs> i'm gonna go now but uh congratulations you found me he's like ooh, ooh, ah, ah, see you on the moon um, this, um I, my favorite part of this movie is when we get on the jupiter mission and it's 18 months later um yeah you mean did, when the when the movie starts basically yeah when the uh yeah. when the prologue is over of explaining what we're doing here it's funny because like so what the monkeys is about i think it's like 15 16 minutes um the moon part is like 30 and then the psychedelic part at the end is like 30 so like an hour and 10 of this is the main Hal Jupiter mission. So the main the main Hal Jupiter mission starts an hour into the movie. So you can divide that up. I think it's 22 minutes here, 28 minutes there. And then for me, the psychedelic part was just the colors. Um, yeah, you're, you're, you, you looked at me weird when I said 22 minutes in the monkey part, 28 minutes in the in the space station part. That doesn't add up to an hour. But more more or less um and then the 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 psychedelic part at the end just him like going through the colors that was only 10 minutes are you counting like when he's in the room as part of the psychedelic part uh, very very obviously i am yes okay well then yeah then that's 30 minutes but i think there's a purpose to that i don't think you can just pass that off as like the psychedelic part I think there's a there's a very strong purpose to that. Alon, when we get scene. when we get to the room, I'm gonna clear out and make space for you to to just do your magic and talk about that. So, but let's hold off. Okay, so so yeah, so let's just say there's an hour and what'd you say, and a half, an hour, ten minutes. It's the main point of, part of the movie. Let's just say that. And so, what I what I thought was really cool is that all the information that we get as the audience packed into like. A, like a really quick um, beginning of, of introducing who Dave is, who Frank is, and then most importantly, who Hal is. Um, in such a small amount of time, you get who Hal is and what his like his purpose is. And his, his purpose is to be this super intelligent computer that can get them from point A to point B. But we also get like his fall into insanity um which i think is so well done but i also have an issue with his motivation that i would like to talk to you about um before we get that can we talk about how cool the uh the space food is yeah yeah no absolutely that's like all of the all of the design parts of how this would work 
are so well done. So interesting just to look at. Um, if, if this movie feels slow, even today, just the, the thought of kind of someone who's like a mastermind of making movies and the detail he put into what he thought, you know, 40, 33 years, 34 years in the future was going to look like is just kind of mesmerizing throughout. Um, and, you know, I, I talk about this a lot when a movie either does a really great job or a really poor job of exposition. exposition. And, you know, when we get to the Jupiter part of it, it's kind of like we need to do the exposition all over. And the interview is so perfect to establish these characters to establish you know there's three guys that are in hibernation there's the computer how and then there's dave and frank and it's just a very smart way to do it so that you can follow along because there's a lot of this movie to come where a lot of the audience will not be able to follow along and so it's like at least this we're going to give you this base right here and i think it's done really well no i i completely agree and um the the i think if you're a avid movie watcher the amount of screen time that they give frank and the and the way they they treat both frank and dave on screen kind of tells you who our main character is like who <laughs> who's going to survive <laughs> longer in the, in this uh, part of the film um and everything points to dave right uh and I and I think with Frank, I love how he's treated, right? Because Dave gets this like really personal phone call with his parents, and and they're like, "Oh, we love you." Oh, and uh, yeah, Dave, uh, Frank's parents says they love him too. <laughs> it's like it's just like yeah, we don't we don't really have time to go into Frank's backstory here. No, that's Frank. Um, Frank's the one that Frank. Yeah, that was Frank. All right, note to self, erase this entire conversation from the face of the fucking podcast. You know, it's it's interesting. It's two distinct looking white guys, but yeah, I got them confused a lot too, you know? So I actually had to, I, I mean, I would have recognized it, but the like when I first started watching this movie, you're introduced to these characters an hour in, and I'm like, oh my God, like who, like once again, I don't know, these, these two guys kind of look a lot alike. I'm like, who are they? You know, whatever. It's like. Yeah, you, yeah, totally. You begin the the movie with, with monkeys and you're like, are the monkeys the main characters? Like, am I going to follow them throughout the whole three hours of this film? And then it's like, oh no, Haywood, hey, I'm going to definitely follow him throughout the whole three hour, the, the rest of the two hour and a half of this film. And it's like, now you're introduced to like these. It's like, all right, well they die in like 30 minutes. So who's next, right? It's like, why am I introduced to, to Haywood's daughter if he's only going to be in the movie for 15 more minutes? I don't care about him. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So you talked earlier about how uh, his descent into madness and it wasn't exactly clear, but this is just me being kind of stupid. Um, I guess it's more spelled out in the book. What's interesting is so... This movie is based on a short story by Arthur C. Clarke called The Sentinel. I guess Kubrick reached out to Clarke and was like, I want to do a movie with you. And Clarke was like, well, how about The Sentinel? Because I guess he wanted to do a sci-fi movie. And so then they worked together on the screenplay. And then Clarke also wrote 2001 A Space Odyssey, the book that that came out in 1968. And so... 
the book does explain uh, things a little bit more clearly. Um, and I, Clark actually came out years later and was like, you know, maybe the movie was a little too opaque and we could have explained things a little better. Um, but I think Kubrick probably wanted to leave it the way he did. Um, seems like the type of guy he was. And so how really starts to malfunction and question things because he's the only one who knows about the real mission to Jupiter. I guess the survey guys don't know in the book and obviously Dave and Frank don't know about it. Um, right. And so he's being told to lie to his crew. And so it starts having him question everything. And we kind of get that in the scene where he asks Dave, are you having second thoughts about this mission? Cause it's odd. Right. And Dave's like, well, what do you mean? He's like, well, there's strange stories about this thing that was dug up on the moon. Um, when we were preparing for this, there was tight security everywhere. The survey guys never met you. And then they were put in hibernation before the, they were put on the spaceship. That doesn't make any sense. Right. And I think Dave is all just like, all right, well, yeah, something's up with you now. You're the one I'm kind of questioning, um, which later on, because right, right after this, Dave was like, yeah, I'm not, I'm not sure about that. And then, uh, and then Hal's like, oh wait, Hey, this thing's malfunctioning. <laughs> The AE-35 is, is going to fail in 72 hours, so we got to fix that. And he's like, all right, well, fuck, I guess we'll work on this now. Okay, so so I'm glad you brought this up, because this is the part where I, I was quite confused at. Um, mostly it has to do with the fact that when Hal brings it up to Dave about, hey, this isn't quite, like, all add up, right? Like, he's trying to get a... He's trying to get um not approval but like a confirmation from someone else like this doesn't make sense to me i took that again you can take it in two different ways the first way the beginning the the way i took it the first couple watches of this is that hal genuinely thinks something is up and he wants confirmation from someone else that like this doesn't make sense right but then what doesn't make sense later on in the film is when Hal is like, I can't do that, Dave. I have to protect the mission. Okay, now all of a sudden Hal is all about the mission and like completing the mission. What happened to his uncertainty about completing the mission? But now, but he has to complete the mission, but he has to kill everyone to complete the mission. That doesn't make sense to me. Take it the other way, right? Take it the other way. What if he was fishing from Dave in the beginning? He was like, yep. hey, maybe he feels like Dave doesn't feel like this is all coming together. So he's like, Dave, do you feel like this is all coming together? And Dave's like, you know, I've been kind of thinking about it. that This doesn't make all sense, make all the sense in the world. And now Hal is like, oh, OK, so he does have his doubts. And now I have to get rid of him because he's going to fuck it all up. I think that has to be it. Which doesn't make a lot of sense because Dave doesn't give off. Dave's almost just like, all right, well, yeah, Hal's kind of fucked up. So we have to get rid of him to protect the mission, right? So it, it, it does, but that does line up with what I said that came from the book that Hal kind of got messed up because he was forced to lie to these people about the mission. Um, well, it, on one hand, you could say like he's trying to tell them the truth. Like if we're going off of that, 
he's trying to tell them the truth in a roundabout way. But ever since the AE35 failed, it's a trap, right? Because he's like, he has to get the AE35 out of the satellite. So he says it fails and they go and they do it. And now he's like, oh, you got to put it back and you got to let it fail. And he's like, just a minor inconvenience. We'll, we'll lose all communication to base. But he wants all the communication lost to base because he doesn't want the uh, base to know what he's about to do. So he lets it fail. They go back out there. They have no communication to base. And that's when he fucks over Frank. Right? Yeah. and, and But also, I think... There's plot holes with that, but those plot holes get explained away by the fact that Hal is malfunctioning. And why is Hal malfunctioning? It goes back to because he was forced to lie and that just doesn't work for his, you know, for the computer, right? Because Hal has to know that there's the emergency hatch that Dave can get back into. And Dave, he can't bank on Dave forgetting his helmet and therefore not being able to use the emergency hatch. So, you know, this plan is all works basically on luck that Dave forgot his helmet. And then in the end, it doesn't work at all. Um, so it's, I think, I don't know. I think it, it's kind of, you could, like you said, you could take it a little bit how you want it. But I do think he is sort of testing Dave's commitment to the mission. But I also think because he has sort of been compromised by the position. Hal has been compromised by the position he's been put in by like the ground control people. He's just not making great decisions, right? He's, he's trying to protect the mission at all costs, but he's not, he's not doing anything that would actually do that um, because they need, they need people at Jupiter. They don't just need Hal at Jupiter. Hal can't leave the ship. So they need others on the ship. But then why does he kill the survey people? Exactly. That's what I'm saying. He's making bad decisions. He has been compromised. Okay. And, and, and while that does make sense, my issue is now is that that should have been communicated in the movie. You shouldn't need a book to, to have been, have read before going to watch a movie. You should have been given all that information within the confounds of the movie. Well, yeah, but I think, one, I just said the the author of it was kind of like, yeah, we probably should have explained things a little better. But then, two, I mean, I think part of this movie, like the ending itself is like, what the fuck is going on here, right? But I mean, I think given the ending of this and how confusing that can be, right? Because I didn't even know they were going through a wormhole. I had to read that and then I was like, okay, yeah, now that makes sense. Obviously, they're going through a wormhole. Um, and then- the, Wait, when the, are they going through a wormhole? The 10 minutes of psychedelic- strobe lights going by that's a wormhole no right yeah but they that's after everyone is dead except dave correct but i'm yeah you're not listening to me what i'm saying is they don't even explain what those lights are right they have they don't uh, give but, an explanation. But I, I don't feel like you need to explain that that's a wormhole like i i feel like you can get and that. then stanley kubrick didn't think he needed to explain why how was malfunctioning to you he thought alan you no, should he, be smarter than this uh-uh no, he needed to explain that shit. But the well, wormhole, he disagrees whatever. With you. He disagrees with you, and that's why it's well, not explained. Obviously, obviously, he disagrees with me. But also, okay, let's let's take the wormhole for 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 example, since we're talking about it. Um, is that how you have to get to Jupiter? 
Like, is that the only way to get to Jupiter, or are they almost at Jupiter, or what? 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 What's with Jupiter? What kind of fucking question is that? What's with Jupiter? They don't know what they're going to expect on Jupiter. They send this mission where they lie to the guys because it's basically a suicide mission. Like, they don't know what's going to happen up there. They just send these guys to go do it. All right, so no one at this point in this reality has ever been to Jupiter. Correct. This is like the farthest that that they've ever been. This isn't like Interstellar where they send 12 other guys into the wormhole next to Saturn, right? This is like a new thing. All right, that that makes sense. And I guess there's just like a fucking room, like a old Victorian room in Jupiter. I would also hazard a guess that it would take longer than 18 months to get to Jupiter. Well, you would hazard to guess, not if you go through a fucking wormhole. The wormhole was at Jupiter. It was like on the surface, basically. Uh, okay. Well, I and then he's flying over Jupiter, and I was like, that looks like the American Southwest, and it was Utah. <laughs> so it was just colored. Yeah, I could have guessed that. I, I was like, I think that. I've seen that in 127 hours. Um, so let's get back to it. Uh, the one of the most iconic shots besides the baby, which by the way, I'll let you know, I was looking for this baby the entire fucking time, and I was like, is this gonna be the end of the movie? And it, yes, obviously it was. But when they're going to go get the AE unit the first time, and uh, I think it's Dave's in the red suit going through the long corridor. That's like you see that shot. I've seen that shot probably a hundred times before I've seen this movie. It's it's amazing. Yeah. Um, they then take forever to get the unit as they do with everything out here because they just want to show you how it all works. Um, and then they get back and mission control is like, yeah, so your how unit is wrong. And we don't really know what that means because um, this isn't supposed to happen. So, yeah, we're just sort of stuck here. My favorite part of the movie is is when, well, I have a lot of favorite parts of the movie, but in this section, my favorite part of the movie is when so nonchalantly after they're like, but you're wrong, Hal, right? And he's like, no, I'm never wrong. It's like, oh, okay. And then like, like literally five seconds later, Dave, uh, Dave turns to Frank and he's like, hey, you know, um, I'm having a problem in one of these pods. Can I talk to you over here privately for a second? Well, one minute, Hal, we'll, we'll be right back. It's like, oh, yeah, a super intelligent computer that can fucking kick your ass in chess. He's not going to see that as like a weird conspiracy thing, especially after the conversation you just had. And then they go into the pod and they're they're like pod uh, pod. They're like, Hal, open the pod doors, please. Hal, open the pod doors, please. Oh, I don't think they I, I, I don't think he can hear us. It's like, dude, even if he could fucking hear you, he wouldn't respond. He knows what you're doing. But he, he can't hear him. He, he reads the lips. And that's my favorite part of the movie is when he reads his, their uh, their lips. That's awesome to me. Do you know whose idea the lip reading was? I'm just going to tell you because no, you don't. Uh, it was the guy that plays Frank Poole. His name's Gary Lockwood. And he was the one who came up with the lip reading thing, which I also read. It's apparently really hard to read lips from the side, but maybe not impossible for a supercomputer to be able to do. It's one of my favorite parts. I think it's like just genius so good job that guy um but yeah he 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 gets their their plans to like uh destroy him yeah uh, one thing i thought is a couple like really kind of cool parts about this scene is 
um, like are int- like questions and then cool parts, right? So the question is, wouldn't Hal know that there was a problem with that pod already? Like, how integrated is this supercomputer with the ship? Like, wouldn't he know of issues? So I thought about this. Okay, Hal is in every part of the of the ship, but the pod itself is a separate entity. Then I thought, how did he kill Frank? Because isn't Hal the Hal unit on the pod? Because isn't it like super close up to the Hal eye? And then uh, does that make sense? I don't. Yeah. Know. So ex- explained in the novel is that Frank allowed Hal to control the pod in the event that something bad happened and he needed Hal to save him, which ended up being the thing that killed him. So. So it was like an extra accessory that he went through for that. He's like, he pressed the button. He's like, how you can control this now. Um, did you, did you find it horribly vague on how Hal killed Frank? Cause, cause I had to rewind that like two times to be like, did I fucking miss something? Cause on one second, Frank's like on the thing. And then the next second we're on Dave's perspective and Frank is like flying off screen. And I'm like, whoa, did, did, did it jump? Like I, I missed something. Well, I mean, I got it because they zoom in really, really quickly onto Hal's red eye. And I think the the color red is obviously important there because it, you know, just the connotations you have with that. If it had been like a nice seafoam green, you would have, it wouldn't have been evil. Um, the Hal on Earth was probably like a different color. Could and you then, imagine if the whole movie Hal's eye is like a seafoam green and then just went right when he turns evil, it turns red? Like how on the nose would that have been? And Dave's looking at it, he's like, hey, I, I kind of like red. Yeah. <laughs> Wait, where's Frank? <laughs> That's um, why he grabs the red suit. <laughs> right. So, um, yeah, so I noticed that zoom in, and then you just see Hal flying off, which is actually kind of funny. It's <laughs> just like Frank. Frank oh, yeah, off. sorry, Frank. Fl- Hal didn't go anywhere yet, but yeah, you see Frank just kind of floating off, flailing, like um, is funny. And then you see him. At first, I didn't know what was going on, but I guess the thing must have also messed with his oxygen, which is like an external cord from his back to his head. And so yeah. when he stops moving, he's dead at that point, right? Like he's ran out of oxygen so like it's over for him yeah i think what what dave is trying to do with trying to get his body back is like maybe there's hope like maybe he's still alive or at least if he's not for the sanctity of like bringing a body back for his parents for his family and then at the point where it's kind of a do or die thing it's like me or him he's like i i gotta think of me i'm the one alive right and that's when he throws the body into the abyss Right. No. Yeah. Absolutely. I agree. Um, what's uh, I read this other thing. The actor who plays Dave, his name is Kier Dulia. Dulia. Anyway, he said that um, his character Dave and Frank were both chose for this mission because of how calm they stayed under pressure, and I think that's obviously exemplified in when Frank goes flying off. The way Dave approaches going to get him back, he seems very calm except for for the fact that he forgot his helmet, right? And then when he's in the pod after getting Frank and he flies back over, he's like, Hal, let me in. And Hal's, I mean, this is the most iconic scene that, I'm sorry, Dave, I'm afraid I can't do that, right? Like, he stays calm 
that entire time just thinking through the problem of how he's got to do this. Yeah. And, and, and the line where he's like, well, then Hal, I'm going to go through the um, emergency exit or the emergency entrance. And then Hal is like, without your helmet, Dave, how are you going to do that? You're going to find that. <laughs> he's like, you're going to find that quite difficult. The, the last part, though, this convo serves this conversation serves no further purpose. Goodbye. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that that is when, in my opinion, Frank uh, Dave is like a total badass because the entire time from entrance to killing Hal, he doesn't utter one word to Hal. Even throughout the entire time that Hal is pleading for his life, until Hal is completely reset at like the very start of his program, then he kind of entertains him with like, yeah, why don't you sing me that song? Right. But but all the way through, Hal's like, what are you doing, Dave? What is this? Dave doesn't say a fucking word because he's like, remember, bitch? <laughs> you said it doesn't serve purpose anymore to have a conversation with your ass. So there you go. Like, oh, it was so awesome. Well, also, we didn't even talk about how Hal killed the three survey guys in cold blood, just like started turning <laughs> off all of their fucking oxygen, but like food. Yeah. yeah, just destroyed them. Um, I, I read uh, that Kubrick was unsure if Dave would have been able to survive even the couple seconds of getting blasted into the like the airlock. And so he was going to film it with him bringing his helmet. But then he read that it may have been possible for someone to survive for a couple seconds. So he's like, ah, oh, this is so fucking cool. I'm just going to do it this way. Um, I thought, and, and it's been a while since I've seen the film, he's wearing a red suit and Frank is wearing a yellow suit. And Frank obviously has his helmet, but it's no use to him. I thought there was going to be a scene where he tries to extract Frank's helmet using the little little claws on the pod. And then he's going to be like in this red suit with the yellow helmet. I was like, that's a cool costume. But no, he just kind of like shoots himself in, which is also cool. So. No, yeah, absolutely. I agree. It's. Just and it's pretty amazing how it was done and just like the effect of it looks like so modern, right? Like Yeah, it looks like something that would happen in, in like the movie Gravity. And what I what I do think is interesting, we kind of touched on this a little bit earlier, is how in a lot of these movies now you would expect it to be really hard for Dave once he gets on the ship to do anything because Hal is so integrated with the ship. He should be able to stop him, but Dave sort of just walks right through, goes into the memory area and the main control and just pulls out, I guess they're called crystals, out to uh, to stop Hal. Um, that's something that probably would change in like a modern movie where they'd like, well, in a modern movie, it would only be the, the Jupiter section, right, for the most part. And then <laughs> they would really elongate how hard it would be to get the shit back from Hal. Yeah, I was going to say there's parts of this movie that remind me of another science fiction movie we did, but it has to be the other way around, right? This has to be the base of like most science fiction horrors. This is like the the great, great grandfather of modern science fiction films. There's aspects to this film that reminded me of Sunshine. Um, and one thing I that my connection from this movie to interstellar and obviously Christopher Nolan took a lot, you know, con conceptual 
uh, Lee from this film. But when you're introduced to TARS and the other AI from Interstellar, maybe because you've seen this movie or you get like this, a common trope to um, make the AI evil. Uh, Maybe you're expecting a, a point in the film where that happens but the, the fact that the only evil person is another human being in Interstellar and actually like cutting off the oxygen like Hal did is what like Matt Damon did for for Matthew McConaughey. Um, the AI in Interstellar stayed good throughout the whole thing, even like to the point where he's like, hey, I'm self-sacrificing. I'm just a fucking robot. I'm I, I'll I'll launch into a black hole i don't care right but then it's so it's like turning that trope upside down that's something i really enjoyed about like interstellar like modern sci-fis where where you're expecting this so for for hal and like you were saying if this was to be made into a more modern film hal would probably be like shutting doors down like in front of um dave to like not let him get to the mainframe or or whatever but he would, right? He would eventually get there and he would start pulling the stuff out. I love how he starts pulling off, like pulling out of the, the memory bank first. And then he hits like the logic chips and crystals or whatever. Well, like a modern version of this is moon you know, the, the AI, right. And we should have known that the AI was kind of evil in moon. Cause it was Kevin Spacey voicing it. Um, <laughs> but even in that, not pure evil, right. Just trying to stop, um, I don't want to spoil Moon too much, but trying to stop um, Sam Rockwell from discovering something. And then once he does, he kind of just allows him to to do whatever. Um, but yeah, like there's, I mean, if you have a sci-fi movie after this, it took from this. And the, you mentioned Sunshine. The, the design of the long ship in 2001 A Space Odyssey, Sunshine is that long ship. Yeah exactly except for like you know the the thing at the front the uh to block the sun out because that was like purposeful for that specific design right um so yeah i mean this is definitely the grandfather as you were saying um and the fact that it can't control you know it can't control the entire ship is just because you know for once they're like all right let's speed this up a little bit (laughs) let's move on because we (laughs) still got 30 minutes after after this yeah and then you know he's basically brings Hal all the way back down to his like base operations um when he's like first activated and he sings this song and i'm sure it's like a nice song right but though like as he's going down an octave as he's shutting down it's such like it has this morbid vibe to it the the daisy song like well especially because re- his voice right his voice gets yeah, super yeah. deep and like kind of messed up i actually like before that when hal realizes there's nothing he can do and he's like i can assure you it's going to be all right i feel much better now like all of those just like trying to get him to stop because hal is so scared yeah um, like like he's begging for his life and that was like yeah. so crazy to me yeah um, yeah, and then even the design of how you pull out like the mainframe on how like you see that in so many just like other different movies like it, it kind of reminded me a little bit of um, the fifth Mission Impossible where they have to go into that like tank and pull out the one card to put in the other so that Benji could, you know, the gate analysis. 
Um, yeah, that's right. That's so right. yeah, this this movie has so many things that are just sort of taken from it. Um, and then uh, after he destroys Hal, Haywood comes up with this video, which <laughs> a little bit reminds me of Wally, right? When they're like, "Oh, you found a plant. <laughs> if you found a plant, then guess what? You get to go back to Earth." Um, but he just explains like, "Hey, there's this black monolith that was buried um, near the Tycho on the moon, and the radio wave was towards Jupiter, and that's why you're being sent." And then we get the last title card, which is Jupiter and Beyond the Infinite. Um, so if the monolith is sending the waves to Jupiter, then why do we get a shot of like the monolith on the way to Jupiter? There's probably some like, uh, I don't know, like they have some sort of sensory system when they're like, oh, someone's gone through this force field near Jupiter. And so then the monolith, which was hanging out with monkeys 4 million years ago, is now like, all right, shit, let me get to Jupiter real quick. Or... There's multiple monoliths. Another explanation. So I don't know. That's another. That's another theory too. Is is they're all different monoliths. But um, what, what I what I like too about yeah. this is there's this view um, in the beginning with the monkeys and then on the moon where you see from like the base of the monolith looking up and you see like multiple planets or suns or moons or whatever like all kind of in a line. And you also sort of get that here with Dave and his spaceship, like the way the monolith it like looks at Jupiter. Just like the whole, you know, the whole view of Jupiter is so beautiful. I, we talked about in Interstellar how this was originally supposed to be Saturn, but the I read somewhere that like they, the guy, uh, one of the guys working on this, developed the technology to where they could have done Saturn like a year after this came out. It was just like just barely wasn't there. Um, but yeah, no, the, the horror music comes back on, and you're just like, yep. oh, this is fucking, this is fucking good, and this is. Right now, where you want that edible to kick in is right about here. Yeah, with the... I don't even know how to describe this. Like a fucking Pink Floyd <laughs> music video. I, I they, the, tried to uh, get, they tried to get Pink Floyd to do some of the music for the movie. That's oh, did they really? Yeah, which totally makes fucking sense, obviously. Totally makes sense. Do you know how they got the the colors and the lights to look like that? Um, yeah, I think it was like a camera going through like beams of like light, like just like passing through it. You know what I mean? Like them moving it forward as the like the lights go behind it. You know what I mean? They just like it super almost, practical. I mean, you'd have to be. It almost looks like it's mirrored a certain way off of each other but the the so it's 10 minutes though that light show is 10 minutes straight and it's like yeah. it starts off where the the center of it is going down the screen um, vertically and then it switches to horizontally and then like you said we see some landscapes what we are supposed to assume are planets but it's just utah um and then we're like oh what did you think of like the close-up on dave's face like when he's all like in movement and stuff you just imagine they're like, just look like you're under a lot of stress and you don't know what's going on. It's like, I can do that because I don't know what, what's going on here. Uh, is that is just I guess that's just like what they assume your face is like warped as you're like going through this wormhole or black hole or whatever you're going through. Um, and then he, he and it's not just him that ends up in the room at the end, right? It's his whole pod that ends up in the room at the end 
Yeah, um, for a minute. And and before you go on the tear that you're about to do, all I want to say about this room is I love the shots of you see the pod. And then from the pod's perspective, you see Dave, who looks really fucking old. And then you get like a close-up of Dave. And then you look back and the pod's gone. You're like, holy fuck. And then Dave moves over and he sees this old guy eating. And you can see him from his back. And then the old guy gets up and looks at where Dave, the spacesuit guy, was. And Dave, the spacesuit guy, is gone. And you're like, what the fuck? Like, just the, it's so cool the way he does that to where it's like, oh, you look over there and you're looking from that perspective. But now the person that you were looking from that POV perspective, that POV is gone. And he keeps doing it to like the old guy eating, then Dave, the old guy, the oldest guy in the bed, and then where the guy eating turns into the black monolith. And then the black monolith looks over and there's a fucking baby there, right? Like just the, the construction of those shots is so perfect. So I don't want to get too deep into it and don't want to bore everyone to death. The way I took it is actually much similar similar to how Matthew McConaughey kind of explains it between him and Tars at the end of Interstellar is that this is almost like a Tesseract within itself, right? Like this is either built out of a higher technology that we don't understand yet, or this is a, a different dimension within his, his reality within his mind. But the re the, the whole thing that I took is that every time the perspective changed, Dave got older, obviously. Did you feel like whenever he looked back into like where his past self was supposed to be, he was almost trying to like conjure up a memory of being there at one point in his life. Like, the the time that passed between him being at one perspective to him being at the other perspective. So let's say him being in the bathroom and then him um, looking at himself eating. Did he go through like a whole life cycle in that room? Like in his reality, did it take like, I don't know how old he was when he turned into the black monolith uh, saying that sentence out loud fucking weird um but like did he feel those 50 years go by in real time and we just witnessed it as a bum, bum, bum sort of thing or did he actually skip like 15 years here 20 years there 20 years there uh, i i think he went through the whole thing in 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 real time he spent those 50 years we as the audience witnessed it in jumps and then every time he looked back at his old perspective, he was remembering exactly how long he's been here. Um, never mind trying to find the logic of how he got the food or, you know, th where this room is actually located. But, and, you know, maybe everything is just answered by the black monolith being the the architect of all this. So uh, that that's how I took it. That was a lot. There's a lot to deal with all at once. I um, I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. Maybe it was just saying that uh, that uh, life is not linear, right? It's a circle, you know, like reincarnation. And so Dave the baby is then going to just like take over Earth. I was like questioning, is that Earth? Because it was just all blue. I didn't see like the, you know, the outline of 
South America, North America. So I was like, I don't know, maybe, but it is Earth. Uh, I also read that um, he was thinking about having Dave the baby just set off all the nuclear weapons surrounding the Earth and just blow the whole thing up. But one, it's very much like uh, Dr. Strangelove, which we already did, which feels like a decade ago that we did that movie. And then two, he was like way, way over budget and was like, all right, we just got to cut this thing. We'll just have the baby floating there and the the music going again. Yeah, I think the baby being there as the movie, as the music um, gets really loud and big and then just, you know, ends. I think that's really powerful. Whatever it might mean, whatever power is behind that meaning, I, I think we can, you know, just determine it for ourselves as the audience. But my question is, is the baby the size of the planet or is he just closer to the camera than the planet is making it feel like they're the same size? I think it's a perspective thing. I think he is closer to the camera. I think he's still really fucking big. He also got from a bedroom in Jupiter to earth really quickly so he has superpowers, clearly. Right. Um, yeah, I don't know. Yeah, I, I, I think, yeah. You know what's funny is when we did Interstellar, I was like, you know, people may have a problem with the bookshelf scene and this Tesseract thing and like, oh, it's just so fucking weird and science fiction-y. But now I'm like, okay, if you had a problem with that, if that was your concern, then okay, you clearly never saw 2001. And if you didn't like the movie and you had seen 2001, then probably you're like, oh, it's biting a little bit too much on 2001, right? Like, stay in your lane, Christopher Nolan. Um, okay. But I disagree with both of those, just to let you know. I think, once again, as I already said, Interstellar, pretty fucking good. Yeah, thumbs up from me. Um, Yeah, the ending's just, it's odd. I, uh... Yeah, that's my hot take is it's odd. I really enjoy it and I didn't have time to, but probably in my day to day, I'm going to I might read the book, honestly, or I'll just watch 2010, the movie, because maybe that'll explain it to me. I I would suggest to you rewatching it maybe in a couple years, maybe longer. Um, I think it, it you feel different. For me, at least, you feel different every time you watch this, um, good or bad. Um, it's a vibe. It's a vibe of a movie. So if you if you want, if you want to be high as a kite watching it or a stone cold sober, it's completely up to you. I think you get very different uh, feels for that. But yeah, my take is uh, no matter how you cut it, it's a vibe of a movie. I don't even understand how you can say that you watched this movie four times when you fell asleep during the monkeys the first time. I was young, man. I was young. Did you wake back up at least or? Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, I I watched the whole thing through. Uh, It's but I didn't really appreciate it until I got older. Um, But but I'll, I'll definitely watch this again because I feel like the older you get, it just this puts I don't want to just sound like a I this puts life in perspective. I don't want to sound like that. Like, oh, this movie is just so deep. But it it's uh, it's a I'm sticking with it's a vibe. That's a that's a strong statement. 
and I like it. That's that's good. Yeah, I um I think visually is what will stick with me with this movie, right? Like the visuals of it are just so kind of breathtaking. And this is normally the part of the podcast where I give you like casting changes that may have happened. I don't know any of the people in this, nor do I know any of the people that could have been this. <laughs> but one fun fact I want to leave you with, which will tell you all you need to know about the auteur that is Stanley Kubrick, is that mm-hmm. he had all the sets, special effects models, and design notes destroyed after shooting because he didn't want any of it to be used in some low-budget B-fucking-sci-fi movie. And I respect that. <laughs> what a G. What a G. That's a, that's awesome. Well, guys, thanks for listening to another episode of I Finally Watched. I'm Milan, And this is David. And I finally watched 2001, A Space Odyssey.